I hide it over in the Oregon, but I forgot to look this morning. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we began a message in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. And in the title of the lesson that I chose for, for that particular week was, This is What Love Looks Like. In verses 9 through 12, we saw what love looks like in the church, in the family of God, in the body of Christ. In this 12th chapter of Romans, Paul has made a transition from long sentences and paragraphs that have to do with the theology of our salvation, what God did, what Jesus did, what it means to be born again and to live in the power of the grace that God has given to us. And then when he comes to chapter 12, he just he starts giving us just short little sentences. And most of them are in the imperative form, which means that the commands... And he says, in light of everything that God has done for us, this is how we live out our salvation. These are the things that we do. And they all uh, revolve around the great commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. It's all about love. And so this chapter is what love looks like when the rubber meets the road. And just to remind us, because last week, we, Mother's Day, um, we took a diversion. So I just want to start in verse 9 again, just reading for a moment. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's another announcement that I need to put in here. Um, Cindy Timmons, who's been a part of the congregation for several years. You just haven't seen her since COVID and when George, her husband, passed away. But these past couple of weeks, she's been in the hospital. Um, She'd been struggling with pneumonia for about a month or so. And when they finally did some more tests, they discovered that she has some small cell cancer in her lungs that's metastasized through other parts of her body. Uh, But they worked on getting the pneumonia thing so she could breathe. She came home yesterday from the hospital. But her daughter, I talked to her last night just before prayer meeting, and her daughter had a request that this coming Friday, if there was two or three guys who could help them, she's got a shed that she needs to find what's in it and what's not in it and what needs not to be in it. And if there's two or three guys that could be of service to showing hospitality and the needs of the saints, because Cindy's not in a position to do it. Rochelle's not in a position to do it. So if you're able to be a part of that, let me know after the service. Last time we talked about love in the church. Today we're going to talk about love in the world. Before we do that, I have a video clip that I want to show you. And a conversation that takes place as the video is going on between a woman named Mary Johnson and a young man named O'Shea Israel. You and I met at Stillwater Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset of what I remember from court, where I wanted to go over and hurt you, but you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And he became human to me, you know. When I met you, it was like, okay, this guy is real. And then when it was time to go, 
you broke down and started shedding tears and the initial thing to do was just try to hold you up as best I can. Just hug you like I would my own mother, you know. After you left the room, I began to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and the animosity, all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over, that I had totally forgiven you. As far as receiving forgiveness from you, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. It's something that I'm learning from you. I won't say that I have learned yet because it's still a process that I'm going through. I treat you as I would treat my son. And our relationship is beyond belief. We live next door to one another. Yeah, so you can see what I'm doing. You know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And you know, our conversations, they come from, boy, how come you ain't called over here to check on me in a couple of days? <laughs> you ain't even asked me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh -huh. I find those things funny because it's a relationship with a mother for real. Well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. You know, you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. Just to hear you say those things and to be in my life in the manner that which you are is my motivation. It motivates me to make sure that I stay on the right path. You still believe in me. And the fact that you can do it despite how much pain I cause you, it's amazing. I know it's not an easy thing, you know, to be able to share our story together. So I admire that you can do this. I love you, lady. I love you too, son. An incredible story of reconciliation. O'Shea murdered her son. But today they live next door to each other and calls them my son, my mom. On the internet, you can find more information. You can pull up that on YouTube and have the closed captions so you can tell exactly what they're saying. Um, but it's an incredible story. With that story in mind, I want to go to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In these verses, the Apostle Paul continues to give commands. Actually, God gives us commands through the Apostle Paul regarding living a life with love that is sincere. He gives to us commands of not only how to love with these four walls and the people that look like us, but how to love people on the outside, people in the world, people who are not yet a part of the family. And what I want you to see is this. Paul is writing from the perspective of someone who is under pressure from an unbelieving world. 
He is writing from that perspective of experiencing the persecution that he's talking about. Bless those who persecute you. He's not writing this from some holy sanctuary, some place where he never rubs shoulders with the people of the world. He has been, he knows firsthand what persecution is. Because of his faith in Jesus, because of what he's preached, he has experienced being beaten. Jews beat him three times with 39 stripes. He's been beaten by the Romans. Uh, he experienced having to have his friends help him escape the city in the middle of the night because the Jews were coming to, to execute him, to do away with him. And so his friends heard about it and then they helped him escape during the night. He was literally the victim of of being stoned, rocks thrown at him. Some scholars believe that they thought they'd killed him and left him there, and that's when he had his experience where he was lifted up into the third heaven and, and had soft things that he's not able to tell us about. All of those things came because Paul preached, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He resurrected from the grave. He's coming back again, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But between now and then, Paul echoes exactly what Jesus taught. You're going to be persecuted for your faith. And the proper response, number one, love speaks well of its persecutors. Love speaks well of its persecutors. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Love Jesus' way means I don't go around bad-mouthing people who are mean to me. I don't run them down with harsh speech. I bless them. Jesus is the one who taught this. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 44, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Now, is that natural? Does that come natural for anyone? Our normal mode is, if somebody strikes us, whether physically or verbally. I don't get even. I get ahead. That's my natural tendency. Jesus said the way of love, the way we are called to live, is to rejoice when you're persecuted for his sake and to bless those who curse us, to love them and to pray for them. Now, I don't think it's any accident that Jesus did not just say, pray for those who persecute you. If he hadn't given the command to love them, what would you pray? I'll tell you my natural bent. When Mr. Pleasant threatened my life said, turn around and hogtie me in my office. My first prayer was, God, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Strike that dude dead. <laughs> then I felt guilty. I said, Lord, that's a little harsh. Just paralyze him until the police get here. <laughs> Neither happened, but the police did catch up with him. And today, because of three strikes, he's in prison someplace. Um, but... My first reaction was retaliation. But Jesus said, love speaks well of us. Love blesses them. Jesus is saying, my love is the same for my neighbors as it is for my enemies. Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, you're no different than the tax collectors. Now remember, in their culture, there was sinners, and then there was tax collectors. And that wasn't Jesus thinking, but that was the culture's thinking. It, it, it's a radical call. This is living life by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
submitting my desires, my wants, my hurts to the Holy Spirit and allowing his love to flow through me. The word calls for me to repent and speak something different about people who try to use my car for drafting when we're going down the freeway. You know the kind of people I'm talking about? They tailgate me. Um, I have to repent for some of the things I've said. <laughs> Lord, bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Number two, love empathizes with other people. Love empathizes with other people. It says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To empathize means to feel what someone else is feeling. It's to enter into their world for a moment to the best of your ability. Have you ever considered the reason why we have to be told to rejoice with those who rejoice? Wouldn't that just come as a natural thing, to rejoice with everybody that rejoices? Let's think about it a step further. Sometimes, somebody else's success strikes a chord of jealousy. Somebody drives up in a brand new Corvette. That should be mine. A new home. Why didn't I get that, Lord? He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who are celebrating. And then the flip side of that is one of the most irritating things is when a Pollyanna comes into your world when you're in a, one of those moments of grief and, and sorrow of some kind, and they tell you, just cheer up and smile, everything's going to be okay. He said, weep with those who weep. Paul writes this command, adjust your response and your attitude according to the people that you are with. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing, be happy for those who get blessed and have great success Mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. George Fox, you know his name from the college in, in Newburgh, uh, the great Quaker wrote in his diary one day, I prayed to God that he would baptize my heart into all conditions so I might be able to enter the needs and conditions of all. I asked the Lord, I prayed that God would baptize my heart into all conditions so I might be able to enter the needs and the conditions of all. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Somebody wrote a poem, and I put it in your notes. A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy that's shared is a joy made double. A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. When somebody's walking alongside me during those dark days, along with Jesus carrying the load, and a joy that's shared is a joy made double. I hesitate because my next note is boom, boom, right on that. Number three, love does not show partiality. Love does not show partiality. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I want to read it from the NIV. It's the next slide. is The NIV, and that's the one I put in your notes. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This goes back to about four weeks ago when we were in verse 3 of chapter 12 when he talked about, do not think more highly of yourself than you should. While the world has created caste and pecking orders and social classes that should not mix or mingle, that's not the way it is to be with the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all come to God at the cross. We're all saved by grace and grace alone. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. We all come as servants 
because that's how Jesus came, to be a servant. If we do not learn to submit our pride to the Holy Spirit, we are susceptible to pride and conceit, and all that leads to disharmony, discord, and not harmony in the body of Christ or in the community we live in. I came across a story from U.S. history, as I was reading a couple of weeks ago, that illustrates this point. There's a story from the life of Charles Evan Hughes. Now, Hughes was a very prominent figure in the leadership of the United States in the first part of the 20th century. He was the 44th Secretary of State under Presidents Harding and Coolidge. In 1930, he was appointed as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court by President Herbert Hoover. As a result of his appointment by the president, he moved to Washington, D.C. When he moved to Washington, D.C., he transferred his letter of membership in the Baptist church to the local Baptist church there. <coughs> his father had been a Baptist minister. Charles Hughes had, had been a lifelong witness to his own faith in Jesus Christ. And in that particular Baptist church, it was the custom that when new members came in, that they would call them forward and introduce them so the whole congregation could meet them. <coughs> Excuse me. On that particular Sunday morning, the first man that was called was a Chinese laundryman. His name was Ah Sing. He'd moved to Washington from San Francisco, and he had a laundry a building or a laundry right near the church. When he was called down, he, he took his position on the far wall there, on that side of the auditorium. And then they continued to call people. They called about 12 of them. And all 12 of them went to the other side and lined up on the other side. And then it was finally time for Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes was called forward. And he made significant Notice that people would significantly notice he made his way and he stood right next. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States said, I'm going to stand next to the guy who does our laundry down the street. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Love does not show partiality. Love enters into the joys and the sorrows of others. Love blesses those who persecutes them. Love our enemies and pray God's blessing on them. As we go on in these verses, we come to another section. Loving when we have been wronged. Loving when we have been wronged. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. How unnatural is this? <coughs> we talk about grace and having grace for other people until we're the one wounded. When we are wounded, we like the Old Testament law. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus came and gave us a new way to live life. And that is to repay no one evil for evil, but to do what's honorable. Do the right thing. And do it in a way that everyone knows you, you've done the right thing. Do not take revenge, even silent revenge. Do not resort to being underhanded. Number four, did I tell you, love's not sneaky. It's not underhanded. Love's not sneaky. It's not underhanded. read a story from the Korean War. read this several years ago. And uh, there was a group of American officers who had rented a house for themselves, and, and they hired a Korean houseboy to work for them. He was a cheerful, happy-go-lucky kind of young man. And they just 
delighted in playing all kinds of practical jokes on him. They would nail his shoes to the floor. They would put a bucket of water over the door so that when he walked through the door, the bucket would fall on him. All kinds of tricks. But he took it so beautifully and, and, and just went on with like nothing bad had happened. Great humor. And because he took it so well, they finally became so ashamed of themselves for doing what they were done. And so they, they called him in one day and said, we want to apologize to you and, and tell you we're never going to do these things again. He said, you mean no more nail shoes to the floor? They said, no more. He said, no more water on the door? They said, no more. Okay, then, he said, no more spit in soup. <laughs> it's possible to take silent revenge, but the word says don't do that. Do what's honorable in sight of all. Be careful to do what's right in the sight of everybody. Number five, love seeks to live at peace with everyone. Love seeks to live at peace with everyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now I realize there's some people who have no desire to live at peace with anybody. But the word says don't let that be you. I used to hear a phrase that came from an old song, it takes two to tango, meaning it takes two to tangle. It takes two of us to have an argument. So choose not to be one of the two. That's what love does. <coughs> Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. It's one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. Number six, love does not try to get even. Love does not try to get even. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When I read that, my mind goes immediately to, to, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Anger is an emotion that we all have. But it's an emotion that must be submitted to the Holy Spirit. Because James chapter 1 tells us that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. We are commanded in Scripture to put away malice, to put away anger, all bitterness, and all its cousins. The desire for vengeance is part of our nature. It's just part of who we are. But as people fulfilling the law of Christ to love one another, to love our neighbor, it's a desire that we choose to not act on. When is it right to get vengeance. That word said, never, never. Human revenge is never the will of God. I read about a college professor who was awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning by the telephone. When he picked up the phone, the person on the other end said, this is your neighbor, and I just want you to know that your dog is barking and it's keeping me awake. The professor thanked him and hung up. The next night at 3 a.m., the professor called the neighbor, and he said, this is your neighbor. I just wanted you to know that I don't have a dog, and he hung up. Clever, but not Christian. Never avenge yourself. Give that emotion to God. Give those passions to God. But pastor, do you know what they did to me? God does. 
And this verse says, leave it to him. He said, leave it to the wrath of God. There are a couple of things I think that if we put into practice on an ongoing basis, it'll help us to make that decision when we are wounded and betrayed in such a way that anger and vengeance wells up in our spirit. Letter A, cherish being forgiven by God. Cherish being forgiven by God. We sang, you are my king, amazing love. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, the Son of God, the creator of everything, the one who holds it all together. Amazing love that he would die for me. You should memorize and live by Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, some of you may have lived what you think is a perfect life and you're not amazed by God's forgiveness, but personally I am totally amazed, totally amazed by God's forgiveness. I put another sentence in your notes. To cherish forgiveness is looking at the holiness of God, looking at the horror of my sin and being staggered by the thought that I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Amazing, amazing grace. I fear that there's a lot of people content with believing in their head that Jesus died for me, my sins are forgiven. And they continue to live their life with unforgiveness in their hearts, carrying grudges, somehow believing it's okay because Jesus forgave me. Jesus made some very strong statements about forgiveness, kind of scary statements. I guess we could just take a black marker and mark them out. Unfortunately, some people have done that mentally. Look at what Jesus said. You remember in the Matthew 6, Jesus said it, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and do what? Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, is the way the song goes, Malat wrote. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the next verse, 14, says this, For if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'm going to throw out a question. I'm not going to answer. I just want you to think about it. Do unforgiven people go to heaven? If you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will the Father give you of yours. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 18 about a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And the first guy he brings in owes him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. 
as I was looking at this last night, I looked at the footnote in my ESV study Bible to see if they gave the equivalent of 10,000 talents. And in the ESV study Bible, the scholars said a talent, one talent, was a monetary value worth about 20 years of wages for the common laborer. 20, that's one talent. He owed 10,000 talents. It only take him 200,000 years to pay his debt. Jesus gave that number because he wanted us to understand there's a debt we cannot pay. The man, the king says, take him and put him in debtor's prison. The man falls on his knees and begs, no, 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 give me a chance. Just give me more time. All I need is 200,000 years. Give me more time. And the king had pity on him. And he forgave him the debt. The man goes out on the street. He runs into a guy that owns him, owes him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wages. So a hundred denarii, about a third of a year's wages. He said, pay what you owe me. And it says he grabbed him by the throat and choking him. Pay you what you owe me. I can't pay you. And he had him thrown in jail, debtor's prison. The king heard about it. Brings in the guy who was forgiven 10,000 talent debt. He said, what's this you've done? I forgave you this incredible debt, and you can't forgive this guy. What? So, dude, I've changed my mind. You're going to be tormented by the jailers until every penny is paid back. And that story ends with these words in Matthew 18, 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Cherish being forgiven because it is impossible to cherish the beauty of being forgiven and then not to share it with those who've wronged you. When I understand the grace that God has given to me, I can't do anything but give grace to people. To forgive those It's helpful to remember the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. You remember that story? The guys were trying to trap Jesus with a theological conundrum. The law says, stone her to death, what do you stay? Jesus said, well, here's what I say. Let him who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all left. They all left. So cherish forgiveness. When I cherish forgiveness, when I see what God has forgiven me of, I can forgive as God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. Let her be, trust God for justice. Trust God for justice. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. This is a quote from Moses' day, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. God said, I will, make, I will make this promise that those who have wronged you, they will, I will, I'll take care of it in perfect measure. Justice will prevail. There will be a day of reckoning. Think about this way. You've been treated unjustly by somebody, and there's no doubt about it, they're wrong, and in no way you deserve that attack on your person. Vengeance is the need of the day. We have two candidates that can do the job of vengeance. Candidate A is yourself. Candidate B is God. Which candidate is better equipped 
for the task of vengeance that will put an end to the issue once and for all. You are the omnipotent one. You are the omniscient one. You are the omnipresent one. Consider God for a moment. No wrong committed against you has missed his surveillance. There has been nothing done to you, not even in the darkest hours and the darkest places, that God did not see and it's not recorded in the heavenly books. He sees evil far better than we see it. He hates hates evil 10,000 times more than we hate it. And he's righteous and pure in everything that he's done. He said, I will make it right. So this is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith in God. Do you believe God will do what he said he would do? Do not take vengeance, the Lord said. I will do it. I will do it. I want you to hear the Lord saying something to you like this. I saw it. You're right. They're wrong. I hate what they did to you. Give me your anger. I'm going to settle this for you. And I'll settle it better than you can ever settle it. Justice will prevail. Do you trust me? Let's think about Jesus nailed to the cross on Golgotha for a moment. There's never been a person treated more unjustly than Jesus was treated by the Jewish leader and Russian so- Roman soldiers. No one has ever been abused more than Jesus was abused. No one has ever been rejected any deeper than Jesus was rejected. Jesus is the only absolute innocent person who ever lived but he was executed as if he was the vilest offender on the planet do you think Jesus did not feel anything when the whip was ripping the skin off of his back do you think he did not feel it when they slapped his face and pulled his beard and spit on him do you think his heart was not broken when the people cried out Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. The people he came to save, the people he came to die for, rejected him. And the nails driven through his hands and his feet, the agony of that tortured body hanging on that cross as it's trying to, 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 to get breath and oxygen, and, and when his body would sag down from the agony and then his have no way to get the diaphragm going. He has to pull himself up and gasp for air. You remember when in the garden, Peter whacked the ear off the Malchus, the guard of the, of the high priest? Jesus said, no, 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 no. I could call 12 legions of angels and be done with this whole thing. But instead... Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here's what he did, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He endured it all and continued to entrust himself to the Father. The one who said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Jesus shows us exactly what to do when our desire for vengeance wells up in sight. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Trust God for justice. Instead of taking vengeance, which will only escalate the situation, Have you watched what goes on between Israel and Palestine? An Israeli gets killed, so they go kill a couple Palestinians. 
Then the Palestinians come back and kill just a few more Israelis. And then it goes back and forth. It just continues on escalating. God said, allow me to be the one who takes vengeance for you. And do positive good. Do positive good. Let her see. Verse 20 said, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by the way, not poison. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do just the opposite of what your natural instinct tells you to do. Bless them by praying for them and literally do something nice for them that will meet them at a point of their need, their hunger and thirst. A lady wrote to a a publication called Pulpit Helps to explain a a miraculous lesson that her family had learned. During one one of their family Bible readings as new Christians, they came across this verse. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. She writes, our sons, 7 and 12 at the time were especially puzzled. Why should we feed your enemy, they wondered. My husband and I wondered too, but the only answer John, her husband, can think of was give, we're supposed to because God says so. It never occurred that we would soon learn why. Day after day, John Jr., the 10-year-old, came home from school complaining about a classmate who sat behind him in fifth grade. I don't know why they called him Bob, but Bob keeps jabbing me with Miss, when Miss Smith isn't looking. One of these days when we go out in the playground, I'm going to jab him in the back. The mom says, I was ready to go down to school and jab Bob myself. Obviously, the little boy was a brat. Besides, why wasn't Miss Smith doing a better job with her kids? I better give her an oral jab, too, at the same time. I was still fuming over the injustice to John Jr., when his seven-year-old brother spoke up, maybe he should feed his enemy. The three of us were startled. None of us were sure about this enemy business. It didn't seem like an enemy would be in the fifth grade. An enemy was somebody way off, well, somewhere. We all looked at John. Since he was the head of the family, he should come up with a solution. But the only answer he could offer was the same one he'd given before. I guess we should because God said so. Well, I asked John Jr., do you know what Bob likes to eat? If you're going to feed him, you might as well give him something he likes. Jelly beans, he almost shouted. Bob just loves jelly beans. So we bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day and decided the next time that Bob jabbed John Jr., John would simply turn around and deposit the bag on his enemy's desk. We would see whether or not his enemy feeding worked. The next afternoon, the boys rushed home from school Uh, from the school bus, and John Jr. called out, It worked, Mom, it worked. I wanted the details. What did Bob do? What did he say? He was so surprised he didn't say anything. He just took the jelly beans. But he didn't jab me the rest of the day. In time, John Jr. and Bob became best friends, all because of a little bag of jelly beans. She goes on to say both of our sons subsequently became missionaries on foreign fields. Their way of showing friendship with any enemies of faith was to invite the inhabitants of those countries into their homes to share food with them around their table. She concludes her story, it seems enemies are always hungry. Maybe that's why God said to feed them. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That's a quote from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 and 22. Heap burning coals on his head. It's the most interesting and mysterious saying. I thought about getting the pan and lighting some charcoal coals and bringing them in, but I was afraid of whatever it might do to our oxygen in here. I decided not to. But um, at first glance, it might look like, well, this is a great way to get vengeance. Hot coals on somebody's head is not going to feel real good. But there are different suggestions. Nobody knows for sure exactly where that phrase came from or what it means. But before I go on, let me say this. There's, there's three different suggestions. 
But from the context, what we understand is this. The burning coals are intended to heal, not hurt, to win, not alienate, to shame, into repentance. They are intended to heal, not hurt, to win, not alienate, to shame, into repentance. Three different suggestions that I found in different commentaries. One commentator said, in ancient Egypt, a penitent person, somebody who's sorry for their sins, would carry hot coals on his head as evidence of the reality of his repentance. The second meaning was heaping burning coals is doing good to our enemies. We will heap burning pangs of shame and contrition on their heads that will hopefully lead them to God's grace. By doing this, it will lead them to God's grace. To validate that understanding of this phrase, I want you to consider the story of David and Saul for a moment. The story I'm thinking about took place during those years when Saul was out to um, eliminate David because he became so jealous of David. He knew that David was going to get the kingdom. He didn't want that to happen. Uh, it all started with the pop song, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. Remember, uh, Saul tried to run him through with his spear, javelin a couple different times, and David is running and hiding. Saul takes 3,000 soldiers to look for David. 3,000 of the national army to look for this one man. One day he goes into a cave, the scripture says, to relieve himself. And you can take that for what it, whatever. To relieve himself. David and his men, the 400 men that are with him, happen to be sitting in the back of the cave. Because it's dark, Saul has no clue that they are there. David creeps up behind him, takes his knife, cuts a chunk off of his robe, and then slips back into the darkness. Saul is totally oblivious as to what has happened. Verse 8 of chapter 24, 1 Samuel said this, Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave, called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Saul's out to kill him. But he honors this man because he's the king. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Be careful about how you treat God's anointed, the people of God. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the agent said, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. At that moment, coals of fire were heaped upon Saul's head. See his response. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. Saul was given a chance to repent, to be changed. 
Sad thing is, he didn't seize the opportunity for two chapters later. There's a similar scene take place. David could have killed him again, but did not. So heaping coals of fire is doing something good that brings a person to feeling shame and repentance. There's a third meaning that uh, Dr. Ray Stedman came up with. He he talked about the fact that in ancient days, um, you didn't have matches. You needed to have fire to cook. And if for some reason your fire went out, couldn't go across the street and buy a book of matches, the Minute Mart next door, or even Walmart, you would go to your friend and you would ask them if you could have some of their coals. And he said that they would take a, a piece of pottery that would hold hot coals and put a pad on their head, and, and if your neighbor was a good person, they would heap all kinds of coals in there, so by the time you got back to your house, you still had a hot coal someplace to light the fire. You're responding to a need. Responding to a need, doing a good deed. And he said, do that to your enemies. Feed them if they're hungry. Give them something to drink. And by so doing, you're doing a good deed. If you're in conflict, you will win if you respond with doing good instead of evil. You will win if you respond with doing good instead of evil. And sometimes you don't know you've won until way down the road. Trust God. Do not take vengeance. read a story about a young Christian man who joined the United States Army. Before he joined the army, he'd given his heart to Jesus, and he developed this habit of every night before he went to bed, he would kneel down and talk to God in prayer. And he continued that practice when he got into the barracks, but soon became the object of mockery and ridicule from the entire barracks. One night when he knelt down to pray after a long march and everybody was weary and he's praying, one of his tormentors took off his muddy boots and threw them at the boy at one at a time, hit him on one side of the head, then the other side of the head. But the young man continued to pray. But the next morning, when the guy who'd thrown his dirty boots at the praying soldiers woke up, he found his boots sitting beside his bed, shined and polished. It broke his heart. He went to the young man and asked for forgiveness, developed a friendship, and he eventually gave his heart to Jesus Christ and became one of those people kneeling down beside his bed. That's what Paul means when he says, overcome evil with good. Abraham Lincoln is credited with saying the best way to overcome an enemy is to make him your friend. Make him your friend. Three times in our passage today we've been told not to return evil for evil. We've been instructed to express sincere love when mistreated. It all goes back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. You cannot do what I'm talking about doing today in your own power on a consistent basis. You need supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart and your life to be able to do what this passage of Scripture calls us to do. And here's the good thing. God never calls us to do something He will not empower us to do by His Spirit. Reading again verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Have you said, Jesus, here's my heart, here's my body, here's my mind, I want to be a vessel for your spirit. I want to give you all of who I am. For some this morning, the call is to let go 
to let go of the grudge and to choose to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ so that you can release that same forgiveness. You say they don't deserve it. That's true. But when you release that forgiveness, you will be set free. You will be set free. Stand with me. We're going to sing a prayer, and then we'll close in prayer.